Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm happy to be well, uh, joined sorry, by James Krieger, um, who I think we last had on the show over a year ago now, um, and that was yeah. quite soon after we'd met in Bath, um, which was a great event. Um, I still remember your presentation and still absolutely love it, um, but uh, you've done loads of work on kind of that element of the presentation, kind of neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis, um, and been on many podcasts, so if people do want to listen to those, that's not what we're going to be covering today, but there are some great ones out there. Um, but if you don't know James, James is the founder of Weightology, so you might have heard of his kind of research reviewer's website, um, which will be linked below, which is an awesome resource. Um, it, I think it's probably one of the lesser known ones. I think a lot of people know about Alan's uh, big research review, but not so many people might know of Weightology, and I think it's a really, really good one um, from what I've heard and from people who have kind of used that as a tool for their coaching and kind of learning. So um, that's fantastic. And he also has a master's in nutrition and a second master's degree in exercise science and has published many research papers along with kind of Brad Schoenfeld, Brett Contreras, kind of worked with them. Um, so you might have seen his name alongside theirs when you've been kind of browsing through PubMed or something along those lines. Uh, so today we're going to be touching on a kind of melding the science and coaching, which I found a fantastic article by James over on Andy Morgan's website, ripbody.com. So I'll make sure to link that below as well. Um, and we're just going to delve into that and really kind of draw out the main aspects from it, because I think in this day and age, I mean, James, you're a scientist yourself and you've made this article, which is quite refreshing because I think we have kind of maybe almost a dichotomy of kind of the, the bros on one side and then the scientists on one side. And you're kind of, this article is all about where, what fits where and what we can take things apart. Um, so I'd love to maybe turn over to you to kind of introduce it a little bit. I know there was a quote I really liked, which was, you turn the science to help you, yourself sift through all the bullshit and learn about what is true about training nutrition, um, which I thought was just a, a really nice quote. So I don't know if you want to start somewhere and then I can kind of um, move you along if I find kind of areas to delve into. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the main thing with that article is I, I think, you know, what happens sometimes with the science is, is that I think sometimes people um, – they don't quite understand what the science means or how to apply it. Um, and I've all, I'll, I'll use the example of uh, the, the volume meta-analysis I published with Brad Schoenfeld and Dan Ogborn. Um, you know, that meta-analysis, we concluded, you know, 10 plus weekly sets uh, per muscle group uh, seemed to be best for hypertrophy. And, but too many people have taken that and saying, oh, does that mean you got to do exactly 10 sets or you should always do more than 10 sets? And, and that's not what the research says. It's just what people need to understand. It's just a rough guideline. It's just the evidence indicates that on average, people are going to tend to gain more muscle when they do double digit weekly volumes mm -hmm. on average. That doesn't mean it's going to be true for every person. Um, and it does. And even if it's true for one person, it may not be true for that same person throughout their training career. Yeah. So um, it's just a general guide to um, to give an idea, you know, of kind of where to start sometimes is, is, is what I think of it. You can use the science as a starting point and then make your changes based on how individuals respond. Um, and, but then you also got to consider someone's training history and stuff like that. It's just like, um, you know. 
I mean, we know volume is effective for hypertrophy, but if someone comes to me and they've already been training with lots of volume and they're not getting anywhere, I'm not going to jack up their volume even more. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, they may need something completely different. They may need a very extended deload. Um, they may need just a period of very low volume training. Um, so those are all factors you have to consider. You know, the, the science can never, the, the thing about the science is when it comes to exercise science and things like that, um, because there are so many different ways to design training programs and things like that, the science is never going to be able to give you the exact answers because there's just too many variables. You know, we as scientists, when we're trying to study something, we try to isolate one variable. But, you know, even when we isolate one variable, there's just there's usually an interaction between other variables. For example, there's an interaction between volume and frequency. Right. Mm -hmm. And so but you can't in the in the lab, you can't necessarily study that interaction. It's like you got to isolate one or the other. So. Um, so I think that's where people tend to go wrong when they try to apply the science and they forget the art of it, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, you can use the science as a starting point and you can also use it as a guide to as definitely what to tell you what definitely is not true or what, you know, I mean, I mean, a perfect example, let's say we know stretching before training is a bad idea if you're trying to get stronger and bigger. I mean, the research is absolutely conclusive on that. You can't say, well, it works for me. No, I mean, the research is pretty conclusive. It's the same for everybody. So we know, based on the science, you know, if you're stretching before you work out, you're going to impair your gains. I mean, that's that's a, that's a very well established. So, so things like that, the science can definitely tell us, give us the hard answers. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of areas, there's a lot of gray areas with a lot of things as well. So, No, I think that's brilliant. You basically touched on the fact that so, I mean, science is brilliant, but it has its limitations um, because yeah. not only, I mean, especially training studies, normally they're not even done on a very well-trained population, yeah. which in itself is difficult. And then I think you even touched on in that article, a lot of the training studies aren't kind of long time like periods. So yeah. that has a huge implication because we're training, especially when you're advanced, you can't even gain muscle very kind of quickly. And then that yeah. even goes on to how do you measure muscle growth, which is a really difficult thing to really do very accurately a lot of the time without very expensive equipment. So yeah. no, I, I love that. And I, have you seen with a lot of your clients, can you talked about a lot of the time, science kind of gives you the average, it gives you what the best is for most people. Do you have many clients where you've seen they've been very different to what the science might indicate is the right way to go about things? Um it's difficult to say. I, I, I haven't, I haven't had any clients I would say dr dramatically deviate from it. Um, I have had some clients where, um, like I, I particularly had one where, um, you know, I used Kevin Hall's models to kind of establish his calorie intake and things just weren't moving at all. And he was telling me how full he felt yeah. on the calorie intake I gave him. And so I dropped it a little bit and he still didn't budge. Um, and he still felt, man, I just feel stuffed. And I ended up dropping his calorie intake to something that I thought was just drastically low. Um, but then suddenly he started to make progress and, and he had just the right level of hunger. You know, it's like when you're, when you're on a diet, you should have a little bit of hunger that signifies you're in a deficit. Right. But you don't, but it can't be unmanageable. Right. And so he had, then he finally had a little, you know, voice, you know, I usually have my clients rated on one to five and maybe he was at a two. You know, okay. so he had a little bit of hunger, but it was totally manageable and um, and he started losing. But but his his reported calorie. Now, maybe he wasn't accurately reporting or something like that. That's a possibility. 
Um, but his reported calorie intake was way lower than what Kevin Hall's models had predicted that he should be at. So, um, so I've had a few situations like that. Now, again, there's a caveat there. Again, people aren't very accurate in the reporting, yeah. so that that may, may be playing a role as well. But um, regardless, uh, um, that's one of those cases where, um, and I think I'd even mentioned that in the article. I yeah. think uh, that same situation, like. Uh, um, you know, the science is telling me, no, this should, this should be true. But, but I had to also go with what my eyes were seeing with him and saying, okay, well, this is obviously not, you know, I, I obviously need to drop his calorie intake. I mean, and especially since his hunger levels were telling me, yeah. I mean, if he's feeling stuffed, um, and over full, I know that, you know, I've got him eating too much, you know? So, no, I'm really glad you brought it up because I, I had that as a note to bring up because it is exactly that. It's where I think people fall into a trap where they ignore what they're actually seeing happening because they're like, yeah. no, that, that can't be right. The science is saying this. I just must be doing something wrong. And yeah. I think that can be really difficult for people who do fall off either end of like the bell curve um, and they can kind of find themselves questioning things quite a lot. Have you... Do you have any ideas or suggestions on how people can deal with that scenario in terms of kind of focusing less on the science and more on just like their own results? I, I think um, I think getting as much information as you can can help you. So that same situation, what helped me is not just looking at you know his body weight and what was happening there, but measuring his hunger levels yeah. and how he was feeling and all the and all and taking all those variables into account. You know. Um, um, you know, I may do the opposite, you know, let's say somebody, I got them on a low calorie intake, um, but they're telling me they're really hungry and they're not losing weight. Well, I'm not going to drop their calorie intake anymore. What that usually tells me is they're probably not, they're probably having a hard time adhering to the diet because they're so hungry. And so in that case, I'd probably up their calorie intake, you know, even though it seems counterintuitive, but that's just, a, that's, a, I would use that as a sign saying, Hey, this, per, this person's probably under reporting, um, I, their, their target is probably too difficult to achieve. Let's up their calorie intake and give something that's maybe easier for them to hit, you know? So, um, so that's one of those situations where you got to, the more information you can take in, uh, the better decisions you can make. So. No, hundred percent. I think uh, as anyone kind of, uh, if you get asked, asked like a blanket question from someone or if I do, it's very often like, I just need so much context. I just, I need to know all of your history. I need to know like the last years, the past months, the past weeks, what have you been doing? Yeah. Because often it isn't the fact that science doesn't work for you or you don't fit the average. It's just right now you've pushed yourself to a point. Maybe you've been dieting for months and months and months on end and you need to take a break. And that's why the the supposed calories you're on aren't causing that kind of deficit you want or with training it isn't that maybe training high volumes doesn't work for you just the fact you've never taken a period at lower volumes you never deloaded like you said yeah that could be yeah. why it's not working right now and um i think the unfortunate thing is it's not a simple answer and people might look towards science for that simple answer and it's just never black and white and um being your own training study is just unbelievably important in that kind of scenario i guess yeah, and that's the thing about science is, and especially our field, it's never exact. Not only because there's so many different training programs and everything, but everything in science is based on probabilities. Everything and the weight of the evidence. I mean, people will say things like, "Like, why should I believe science? Because I'll see one study that says one thing, and then I'll see one other study that says the opposite." And what they don't understand is usually there's a body of evidence, and you have to look at what the weight of them is. Because you can get 
just by random chance, you know, certain results and studies that, that, you know, may go totally against what the weight of the evidence indicates. And there may be other reasons other than the fact that all that other evidence is wrong, you know, so, um, you know, so you have to go with the weight of the evidence and also the quality of the evidence as well. You know, I mean, um, Eric Holmes had a great article on this topic not too long ago, um, kind of talking about the different levels of evidence and, mm-hmm. and, and when it, how it relates to training and nutrition and everything. And, um, uh, you know, there, there are some things where the evidence is, uh, you know, we're not quite sure we think this, but you know, don't have enough data, you know, that there's a lot of gray areas. And then there are other things where we're more fairly certain of, you know, and it just depends on, you know, Lane Norton one time used the analogy, uh, at the Epic fitness summit. He said, uh, you know, there's data you can, maybe bet your foot on there's data you can maybe bet your lower leg on there's data you could probably bet your you know cut yourself in half off yeah. i mean just just the degrees of 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 the strength of the data and and that's it could be all over the place when it comes to our field so and i guess with nutrition there's something i think you even may have said it on another podcast not too long ago where with nutrition like this very clear things that are now coming out we've done lots of research and i guess that makes sense in terms of people's health and everything that just has much more implications than like getting jacked and hypertrophy yeah. um, and kind of there's more and more evidence coming out with the hypertrophy stuff is there anything you'd say where in the last few years maybe brad and yourself have been doing a lot of work in where it is becoming more and more kind of this is not kind of black and white but it's becoming we bet more on this element of kind of this creates more hypertrophy in terms of training like um I guess, could you rephrase your question? Like, So I guess uh, you've, I, I, for me, I guess I can give an example is it seems like training volume seems to be more clear that that if, if you can train with more volume and recover from it and adapt to it, that seems to be kind of the biggest hypertrophy stimulus um, that's yeah. out there. Is there anything else along that? Like frequency, I know there's been more studies on that um, becoming yeah. clearer that something's more beneficial than something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, it still seems to be volume seems to be the biggest thing. Volume, and I would say also, I would say the data is growing that I think um, if you're if you're training at least in moderate to high rep ranges, probably at least some of your training needs to be at least to near failure. I think I think the data is fairly clear on that. Um, if you want to maximize hypertrophy, um, just from a you know. Um, because we've got plenty of studies showing that, you know, when people stop well short of failure, you know, they just don't gain as much muscle as people that always get kind of close to it. So, um, so I'd say that's another area, um, you know, in addition to the volume that seems to be, um, seems to be a, I would say fairly certain thing, um, at this point, um, frequency is kind of up in the air, but right now the data kind of seems to indicate that probably doesn't really matter that much um if it has an impact it's probably pretty fairly small um which which is great for people because people can choose a frequency yeah. that works well for them you know and not really worry about oh am i you know impairing my gains you know even the old bro split which was getting a bad rap for a while yeah probably based on on a study that brad and i published but i want to note in that study we had a very limited data to work with and now more studies have come out um and i've kind of addressed this in my research review um, even though bro split really isn't isn't really all that bad. I mean, it's really not much different from any other frequency. So, um, so whatever frequency works for you is is probably the best. You know, whatever whatever frequency can give you the best you know quality volume. I would say 
Um, and I think that's where that interaction between frequency and volume can play a role. But yeah, uh, um, yeah. and even Greg Nichols you know, recently had his article on frequency. You know, the, uh, published a big article on frequency, and the the main thing with frequency is seems to be just as a tool to increase volume. Yeah, you know, if you're training a muscle group once per week, and then you add, to, you know, do a second time per week. But rather than splitting up the volume, you're using that to add more volume. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that seems to be the way to uh, where it seems to help. So, no, I, I, I think frequency, the way I've always kind of viewed it for myself was if a muscle that I've trained is now recovered, it kind of feels like that's probably a good time that I can train it again. Um, yeah. certain muscle groups well it depends how you train if, if you do all you if you do the bro split and you do your one massive leg training session or massive chest day it's probably it could take you a week depending how strong you are to recover yep. but if you do yeah. a little amount then you can train more frequently so um yeah. i guess the the thing you don't want to see people true is try and do like a high volume bro uh, a high frequency bro split where they just do like yeah, masses <laughs> of like huge chest days every other day or something where it just, <laughs> that wouldn't work um, something that I found really interesting that you were, you've kind of touched on, I think in a couple of other podcasts I was listening to you on, um, in that you've been experimenting with kind of highly submaximal days and then maximal days, um, in your own training program. And there's, you said, there's no research on this. You're just kind of experimenting with yourself. And I didn't know if you'd feel kind of, um, able to like talk a bit more on this subject. Cause it sounded really interesting to myself. Yeah. So it was, it basically came about because um, there was this one weight training program by this guy, Barry Merriman, who was on the Internet back in the 1990s. And I'd always seen this protocol and I'd seen some a number of people give positive reviews on it, saying they had great results with it. And and um, and I was just finding, you know, at 44 years old, I was like having a hard time. You know, my joints were bothering me and stuff. And so what I liked about the protocol is. is um, you, your heavy days were a lot less frequent, but you put in these light days in between, but, but the light days were basically submaximal days where you're training well short of failure. Okay. You were using like 75% of your work weights. Um, and, but for the same repetition. So, so basically you're just going in go, getting a light pump and that's it. And so, um, I'd always wondered, you know, if there's any benefit to that, you know, I could speculate that perhaps, you know, doing that in a session really isn't going to stimulate much hypertrophy, but what it might do is act as kind of a maintenance stimulus while allowing recovery from your heavy session and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I did that for about three months. I mean, I hit some personal bests on some lifts and stuff, um, but I hit a plat- I started hitting a plateau. Um, but then I, the, the thing about the routine I was on is it was a very high frequent, like, like I was training four days on one day off and, and it just wasn't working for my schedule. Um, even though some of the workouts were short and so I had to actually change my training anyway. So I'm not doing that anymore, but the thought is still intriguing to me about this idea of, of if you spread out your heavy days more, perhaps it keeps you sensitized to the training stimulus. Um, but having the light days between act as a maintenance stimulus. So, um, so it was an interesting experiment. I will say I, I, um, I did set some personal bests, but I was, I was sore all the time from the heavy days because, because, because the, the frequency was so much lower on the heavy days, you know, it's like, you don't get that repeated bout effect as much. And so, so every, every session, even though my training volume in a session was only moderate, you know, it wasn't like super high or anything. Um, I'd be pretty sore for, you know, uh, you know, three or four days at least, um, after each, each session. So, um, 
so there's some there's some speculative evidence of why that might work um uh you can also look at it as basically it's almost like i was doing a deload between every heavy session is yeah. really what i was doing um so but it's hard to say whether that would actually enhance gains over time um or if it just is a way to maybe allow cons more consistent gains over a long period of time i don't mm -hmm. know you know don't have any data on it so um now i'm actually experimenting with actually yes i saw you made a post about this um, I'm doing a lot of rest pause training now, um, oh, like cool. mile rep type stuff. Actually, I'm actually pretty much that's all I do now. Everything is just rest pause. Um, just because number one, I've had so many projects going on that mm -hmm. like I've, I've got to keep my gym time down. Um, number two, I became intrigued by the idea first based on some research that's out there. Um, but also this idea, um, and so this is a really cool concept that I just came across just a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, this concept called exertion load. So I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's this guy named Robert Frederick. He's got an app. He's got an iPhone app. There's not, there's not an Android version, but he's got an iPhone app called stronger S T R O N G U R. But anyway, and I don't know how I came across his website, but on his website, he came up with this concept called exertion load. So we all, you know, we all know about the concept of volume load, which is yeah. just, you know, sets times reps times weight. But the problem with volume load is it doesn't consider the amount of effort you're, you're putting into, you know, I could do 10 sets of one with 30 seconds rest between each set and never hit failure mm. or do one set of 10 reps straight and hit failure. Those are going to have the volume load will be the same, but those will have drastically different uh, biological effects, right? One is going to maybe stimulate some hypertrophy. The other one probably won't. Right. Um, so, and then also like with volume mode, you can't compare, you know, even comparing different rep ranges, you can't compare, you know, sets of eight to even sets of 12 or sets of 15. Um, cause you can get different volume loads, just, you know, especially with higher reps, it's easier to jack up your volume load a lot more just yeah. with doing higher reps. So, so I came across this concept and what he did is really interesting what he did. So he, he took into consideration the effort level and what he used is basically he looked at velocity loss because, you know, when you're doing a set to failure, um, the, the loss in velocity kind of correlates with fatigue mm -hmm. and it's kind of exponential, right? You, you slow down, slow down, especially when you get those last few reps. And so he took that in consideration and created an equation that would consider both the load you're using and the volume but also how close your the reps in reserve, how close you're training the failure and your effort level and combine that into one number. And I thought, wow, this is a really cool thing, right? I mean, now it hasn't been validated in any research or anything, but I just kind of ran some of his stuff through uh, just rough calculations and stuff. And it seemed to work fairly well, at least for up to moderate repetitions of around 15, 18. When you start getting the higher reps, it doesn't seem to work very well as far as calculations, but um, but what I found is, you know, um, you know, let's say, you know, three sets of eight to failure and three sets of 15 to failure should give you roughly the same hypertrophy. Um, and interesting is if you run those values through the exertion load calculations, they give you roughly similar exertion loads cool. as well. So, so that's what I thought was kind of cool. So then I started thinking of like, cause I wanted to do more rest pause training. Um, because the other reason I wanted to was because, um, I'm just getting all kinds of joint. I'm still having joint issues and stuff. I'm like, how can I decrease my total repetitions in the gym, like my absolute volume, mm -hmm. but still, but still keep my effective volume high. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and I thought, well, rest pause is probably the best way to do that, right? Because so then I was curious, okay, how many rest pause sets do I need to do to maybe, you know, let's say be equal to, let's say, three sets of 10. And so I ran it through these exertion load calculations and came up with some numbers. And and um, and what's funny is I started doing the rest pause and I've, again, set a bunch of personal bests on a bunch of lifts. So, nice. Um, um, so it's it's kind of a cool concept. So I recommend anyone listening to this, go, go check it out. Exertion load, you can do a Google search for it. Uh, the website is um, stronger.io, S-T-R-O-N-G-U-R.io, I think. So, um, but I've actually ran the concept by Eric Helms and Brad Schoenfeld, and we all agreed that it, you know, would be cool to test it in some research at some point. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's really cool because I know. Um, well, I've heard of obviously Greg Nichols did his. He kind of talked about hard sets. It was kind yeah. of like an easy way for hypertrophy to, to visualize things, which is kind of similar in some ways. Um, yeah. And, and, and that hard sets works really well, except for when you start looking at things like drop sets yeah. or rest pause, because then it's, it doesn't necessarily really work because I don't think, th- let's say, you know, three sets to, of 10 to failure is going to be the same as one set and then two short yeah. little rest pause sets, even though they're all hard sets, right? Um, um, so, so there is the limitation even with the number of hard sets. And so that's, again, I, I, I kind of... Again, there's limitations with the exertion load concept as well, but um, you know, when I ran it through the numbers, I found that um, one set and maybe about four rest pause sets, you know, um, okay, seemed to be about give about the same exertion loads as three straight sets, you know, and so so that's what I've been doing. So, for example, when I do my leg extensions, I got one set to failure, twenty second rest, pump out some reps to failure, twenty second rest, you know, and I do that four times. Um, and usually I, you know, it's like, I might get four reps, then three reps, then two and two or, you know, things like that. But, uh, um, but that saves my total repetitions because yeah. rather than doing three sets of 10, which is 30 total repetitions, um, basically it's almost like I'm doing about 20 total repetitions. So it's my absolute volume is being cut by, you know, a third, um, but I still seem to be getting the same amount of effective volume in, mm-hmm. um, so, so it's an interesting experiment and we'll see, uh, I'll, again, I just started this like maybe three weeks ago, so we'll see how it continues, but. No, it's really interesting because uh, I was going to also bring up effective reps, which Carl, I know you've had some back and forth with Carl and he came on the podcast um, and was talking about effective reps and they were under the same, they were to do with drop sets and kind of similar to Maya reps where you're kind of yeah. limiting rest periods basically and then just repping out very close to failure. Um, yeah. I'd be really interested. The the only thing I I think they sound fantastic, and from the, the whenever I hear about them, they seem to be very effective. I think the practical limitations of kind of long term use of it is always something I was never sure about. Um, I don't I, know. I if think you've it depends on the exercise. I mean, there's some exercises you can't, you just can't do them with. Yeah. Very. I mean, you're not going to be doing deadlifts to failure and doing drop sets with deadlifts and stuff like that. I mean, you there's might. just some exercises. <laughs> <not, you should, laughs> it's just not safe, you know. Um, so it's not, you know, um, and and it's even the same thing with the rest pause stuff. It, it doesn't really work well for some types of yeah. exercises. But um, um, but yeah, for a long term, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I know Birday will use mile reps long term with some of his clients, you know, for over the really long term. So. Um, you know, um, the, 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 and I, th- I think it may depend on how frequently you're training too. you yeah. know, I, I'd say if you're training with a really high frequency and you're doing tons of, you know, stuff to failure all the time that might 
be an issue. I think if your frequency is a little bit on the lower side, um, it may not be as much of an issue, you know. Um, uh, so, and the other thing about the effective reps is, you know, I also don't want people to think it's not like, it's not like a rep is either ineffective or effective. There's, you know, it's going to work on a scale, you yeah. know, and you think of it in terms of the closer you get to failure, the more effective each rep gets um, till, you know, it's those last two or three reps that are the most effective ones, which is the reasoning behind things like drop sets and, and rest pause. You know, you're trying to, um, you're using fatigue to keep muscle activation really high. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and basically it's like you're using fatigue to get right to the most effective reps rather than having to build up to it again with each successive set, mm-hmm. you know? So, no, it's, it's really interesting. I hope um, more stuff comes out on that element and stuff. So, no, it's it's great to hear about your actually experimenting with yourself. Um, it's always nice to hear that kind of scientists be in their own studies. Um, it, that's funny. It's like I'll actually – a lot of times what I'll do with myself is um, I usually won't use something on my clients unless I've done it myself, nice. you know, because I just want to see, you know, how it feels and stuff. So, like – like I have some clients, you know, doing drop sets, you know, cause I've done drop set stuff in the past. It, you know, seemed to work very well. Yeah. Um, works great for some of my clients who, um, either have hit plateaus on things or have a limited time to train. Um, so I'll use stuff like that, you know, mainly just on isolation movements. Yeah. Uh, um, um, but also, but I, I haven't put any clients on rest pause type stuff yet. Um, but that's why I wanted to experiment on myself yeah. first before I decided to, to, uh, see, um, you know, maybe, you know, uh, using on some clients as well so yeah it's nothing worse than if you program something and the client's just like have you it's just it will be obvious if you never tried it um, I, I hate to do that <laughs> i know i recently tried i'd never programmed i did a um a superset basically a, i call it a metabolite superset where i'm not resting between uh did bulgarian split squats on the smith machine and then into smith machine squats straight after and i was <laughs> like I'm glad I've tried this. My clients aren't going to be glad I've tried this because it's, the <laughs> pump was ridiculous. Um, but I realized I should have only done one set rather than three because I was then sore for like a week afterwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't good. Um, so something I did want to bring up, and it's something you actually talked about. I think it was on Danny La- Lennon's podcast, and mm-hmm. we brought it up last time. And it was one of the ways of assessing whether you've grown muscle or not was talking about kind of if, if you're getting stronger in a certain rep range, then you're probably getting bigger. Um, and last time we settled on like eight to 12 rep range. If you're getting kind of stronger within that rep range, you're probably going to be growing muscle. And I think you might have slightly changed your stance on this position a little bit. I don't know if you discussed it's better to think about volume rather than kind of a single set and things like this. Yeah, yeah, because, and I say that because of, when I've gone back and looked some of the existing research um, and also based on some preliminary data I've seen of research that hasn't come out yet, so I can't totally talk about it, um, your performance, at least in one single set, may not necessarily correlate well with muscle growth, um, especially if you're an untrained subject, but let's assume you know, you're a trained subject. Um, so just because you're getting stronger in the eight to 10 rep range, yeah, you you probably are getting bigger, but you might, it may not be true. And, and what I want to say that is I think you want to look at your performance across multiple sets. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing three sets, if you're only getting better on the first set, but the other two sets are not getting any better on, then chances are you're experiencing more, some types of, of, of neural adaptations or something because 
you know, if the increase in force production is due to an increase in muscle size, it should translate across multiple sets, you know. Um, um, and I think that's one of the limitations of HIT type programs because um, they'll just, you know, one set to failure and stuff and yeah. they'll say, hey, look, I'm getting stronger. I must be getting bigger. Well, that's not necessarily the case because um, a perfect example is you can, there's this one volume study published by Rodelli um, and colleagues, you know, a couple years back and it was on untrained uh, subjects, but the interesting thing was is if um, there was definitely a volume effect. So the people that trained with more volume got more hypertrophy. Um, but when you look at the strength data, um, in some of the exercises, not all of them, but in some of the exercises, the low volume group got just as strong as the high volume group did, which would suggest that um, uh, strength alone can't tell you everything, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the thing is, is, if I get stronger, you know, even on my one rep max, you know, my eight to 12 rep max theoretically should improve a little bit. So, um, so even just getting stronger in the eight to 12 rep range, um, probably, um, uh, may not necessarily be a reliable indicator. Um, unless it's, ha you know, if it's happening over multiple sets, yeah. then it likely is, you know? So, um, and the other thing I want to say is there's some data suggest, unfortunately it's on untrained subjects. There's nothing on trained subjects that would suggest that performance improvements on isolation movements may actually correlate better with hypertrophy than performance improvements on compound movements. Um, again, there's limited data. There's one study on untrained subjects that showed that the, the correlation, for example, on a leg extension correlated much better with quad hypertrophy than, than on a leg press, um, which intuitively makes sense. I mean, if you're isolating the muscle yeah. that you're looking to get bigger, um, you know, you, you want to see, per, you know, you should see performance improvements on that single joint exercise. I mean, if, you, if you're seeing performance improvements on the compound, but not the isolation movements, you know, then either you're getting hypertrophy in other muscle groups that aren't related to the, you know, maybe some of the smaller, you know, weaker links, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, you're just getting better coordination and neural adaptation and stuff like that to improve your strength on the compound movement, especially if your isolation movements aren't improving. So, so I would say, you know, that's another thing, you know, if you're using your gym performance as a proxy, um, for muscle gain, um, those isolation movements should be improving, you know, um, in addition to the compound movements. So, I thought that was fascinating because I think a lot of people do really think about like, I don't know, even like an AMRAP on a certain lift and they consider that above like a volume PR and especially the isolation movements. I think a lot of people maybe even don't necessarily track those. And so yeah. they're really just focused and even for hypertrophy, they're just focusing on their big lifts. If they're going up, that's great. And then isolation movements, it doesn't matter too much. They're just making up more volume. But as you've just rightly put out, I mean, you're not getting neurologically more efficient at doing a leg extension, but yeah. you could at a squat. Yeah. So, yeah. no, I, I love that. And I don't know if you have, is it a case of, for your clients, yourself, like tracking PRs over time, tracking data over time, or do you ever like have, do you ever test or do anything like that? No, I don't do any testing. It's just, I just look at their gym PRs um, uh, on the days that, like I have some clients doing, you know, maximal and submaximal days. Um, and, uh, so I'll look at their performance improvements on the, on the maximal days, for mm -hmm. example, you know, so basically on the days that they're, they're training, uh, you know, you know, close to failure or, or to failure. Um, I, I you know, that's where I want to see the improvements and I, and I want to try to see the improvements across multiple sets, you know, as long mm -hmm. as I'm seeing it across, you know, multiple sets or if they're doing drop sets, I want to be seeing improvement, not only on the, on the initial set, but also on the, the drops, you know, 
um, if, if I'm seeing improvements there, then, then I feel good, you know, about what's happening. So awesome. No, I think that's really useful for the listeners because especially for those interested in hypertrophy, because it just gives them something extra to think about. Um, I, I guess in some ways they wish they didn't know it, but <laughs> I think it's good stuff to know. Um, so something I did want to ask you is you already talked about some unpublished data, but I did want to ask kind of what studies do you want to see come out, um, that haven't been done yet? And of those studies, what do you kind of think's going to happen? What do you kind of see happening in the future of kind of whether it be hypertrophy? Well, we're on the top of hypertrophy. Is it hypertrophy research? I know it's an area you're really interested in. Um, I'd love to hear. I want to see. I want to see more research on the various. Um, I think we're getting a fair amount of research on frequency now, so I think you know that's starting to be kind of beat to death now. Um, but. Um, uh, we still need more research on volume, but you know, that's already in the works, you know, Brad's got, Brad already ran his first cohort of subjects last year. Um, and he's running a second cohort now. So that data will be out. Um, data collection should be done by the summer. Um, but you probably won't see it published. I mean, and this gives, gives people an idea how long it takes to do research sometimes. I mean, you know, we started, um, we had, you know, we put together a proposal for this study, you know, in early 2017 or late 2016, right? He got the funding. He finally started data collection maybe in September of last year, um, finished data collection with one cohort of subjects, but we don't, you know, we don't have enough subjects for the whole study. So he's running another cohort, which he just, he just uh, finished the pre-data collection, I think last month or the month before, which means you know, that's going to go on. I can't remember if it's an eight or 10 week study or whatever, mm -hmm. which brings you into summer. Then he'll send the data to me. I got to analyze it. We got to do the write up. We submit it to a journal. You know, then it'll be a month or two before we hear back from the reviewers. Um, and then usually, you know, usually you got to do some revisions mm -hmm. um, after when the reviewers come back. So then you got to submit your revisions and, so I would say, you know, in the most idealistic situation, this study wouldn't come, won't come out until the end of this year. And that would be the ideal situation. More realistically, you're going to see it next year sometime, wow. you know. So, um, you know, we got another study in review right now, more looking at body composition testing. Mm -hmm. And we submitted it for publication back in August of last year. Wow. And, and... Um, it's gone through two sets of revisions now. Like we just, I just submitted another set of revisions, you know, so um, if it gets accepted, it, it probably won't show up for publication at least until the summer. So, I mean, that's almost a, a year from submission, you know, that it shows up in the journal. So just, it gives people an idea of how long yeah. it takes for this research to emerge. Um, but to get to, back to your question, um, I, I, I want to see more stuff on the intensity techniques. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, more stuff on drops. I want to see stuff on drop sets on trained subjects. You know, there's very little on trained subjects. Most of the drop set studies are on trained subjects. I want to see more on rest pause training, but comparing rest pause training to, you know, there's really only one study looking at, at least I would say the mile rep style of rest pause yeah. training. Um, and that was one that was just published not too long ago, but they compared it to a group that basically trained, you know, like three sets of six at 80% one rep max. So they, so which that group was training well short of failure, right? Mm. So I want that more compared to just traditional training to failure. I want to see more data like that. You know, I, I think um, 
Um, this whole concept of effective reps, I'd like to see more research on, you know, how, you know, um, you know, we obviously know you got to get close to failure, but you know, how close do you need to get, yeah. you know? Um, um, and, and also are there ways to quantify like exertion load or something else? Are there better ways to quantify, I guess, bring in effort into the equation yeah. Um, and not just looking at the external load and repetitions that you're seeing, but also incorporating effort into the equation. You know, um, are there ways to quantify that? And, uh, you know, I would say valid ways to, to quantify that. So, no, really interesting. And I think it's great to I, I, a lot of the listeners here will be kind of the people that love research, love looking on PubMed and things. So actually hearing how the whole process takes so long, it's kind of like the manufacturer of a car, it has to go over here, here, and it takes yeah. a long time to actually get, it probably takes longer than what a car would take actually. So um, no, it's fascinating to hear. And um, I, I also am really looking forward to more research that kind of yourself and Brad are doing. I know the listeners all are, and um, it's just always a pleasure to hear about it and hear the work you're doing. So I have to thank you um, a lot for that. And if the listeners want to learn more about what you're doing, um, kind of the research review we've already brought up, so I'll make sure to link that below. Is there anything that's coming out kind of that you want to share with the listeners that's kind of new and exciting with that? Um, yeah, so uh, I actually got it. There's a couple other, you know, um, couple other things coming out uh, this year. Uh, so one thing is I got a course with Mike Matthews on basically teaching people how to read research and evaluate scientific research and everything. Very cool. Um, uh, and it's a whole, it's a, it's a written course. Um, uh, it's, it's going through an editorial process right now. So, um, you know, looking, you know, we had hoped to launch it earlier this year, but you know, we, we had, we've had some delays there. So, um, hopefully maybe this summer it'll be out. Um, and then I'm working with Luke Johnson of Shredded by Science on an obesity course. Um, we'll actually be filming that next week. And so that should be out later this year. Um, and, uh, so there's, yeah, a couple more exciting projects and then obviously talks, I'm going to be in the UK talking, uh, with, uh, for Mac nutrition, mm -hmm. Martin McDonald, uh, I'll be in the UK June 2nd talking there. And then, um, then I'll be in Australia, um, oh, for, man. for a big evidence-based conference, oh, yeah. uh, with, uh, the ultimate evidence-based conference, UEBC, I think is what they're, they're calling it. So, yeah. uh, that'll be in, uh, late June. So, so that, that's some of the stuff that's uh, going to be uh, coming out. So, no, that's super exciting. You're all over the place, which is amazing. Um, yeah, Jacob, uh, I'd love to be at the, that one run by Jacob, the ultimate fitness. I, I forget what it's called, but I'll make sure to link it below. It's that's going to be insane. Yeah. The amount of people he's brought to that is absolutely nuts. Uh, Pascal will be there. Um, who is a coach or a vice stronger as well. Um, yeah. And I will have to make sure I see you when you're in uh, in either Nottingham or in London. I'll make sure I see you at some point because that would be great. Yeah. And I hope a lot of our listeners will make sure to be there as well. So a massive thank you. I'll make sure that's all linked below. Um, and we will talk to everyone soon. So cheers and take care. Yeah, thank you.